Get ready to rumble. Shilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Pat Sawyer, PhD, a faculty member at UNC Greensboro, a widely published columnist and co-author, along with Neil Shenvey, of the new book, Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society. Pat Sawyer, thanks for joining us on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Thanks, Rob. Glad to be here. Tell us what prompted you to tackle the subject. It's a very lengthy and well-documented book, and it took a lot of work, clearly. Well, that's a good question. I was a banker for about 20 years, and I felt like God at a certain point was pressing me to get more and more into the arena of ideas. And that led me going to graduate school, retiring from my bank job, and then getting a a job where I didn't have to think much, and then went to grad school full-time. I got a master's in communication studies and a PhD in educational and cultural studies. And I chose that PhD route for two primary reasons, which has led to how I'm here now. One is because I knew that knowledge area would be a challenge to Christian epistemology on some level, and I wanted to get an understanding of that knowledge area. And in the spirit of 2 Corinthians 10.5, take every thought captive for Christ, get a good understanding of it, and then be salt and light in that knowledge area. And then secondly, because I knew some of the things that were concerned about that PhD, which were, which is in the critical tradition. Some of those things are a concern for me as a Christian, issues around biblical justice, pushing back against sexism and racism and so forth. And, and so I got involved in that PhD. And then I also began to see, Rob, some things take place in the evangelical church, the broader church that began to concern me, an emphasis, for instance, on ethnic identity, In the white nationalist, white power groups, you would see a strong emphasis, obviously, on white identity. And part of my secular scholarship is pushing back against white nationalism and challenging white power groups. But then I also began to see in the evangelical church certain non-whites, people of color, their ethnic identity really uh, rising to a place that seemed to be, from a functional level, rivaling their identity in Christ. And then that began to concern me. And then as I began to, to pray about some of these things, I saw other places where the penetration of critical social theory was impacting the church. Along the way, I met Neil, my colleague, Neil Shindy, and he was seeing some of the same things. And then we began to collaborate, <clears throat> speak in certain contexts and write. And then that has been happening over the last four or five years. And then at a certain point, we thought, you know, we may need to write a book to try to tackle this in a more robust way. The title includes the word critical theories, and I think there's a lot of people who've heard the term, they've heard critical race theory, but they don't really understand in a broad way what you mean by critical theory. So maybe we could start there. Sure. So critical theory begins with the notion of historic critical theory, capital C, capital T, 
And that term really comes out of the 1920s and 1930s out of a, a school of social science, an institute in Frankfurt, Germany. And critical theory, historic critical theory, is both an extension and an amendment to Marxism. And so Karl Marx really is the first critical theorist. Those social scientists back in the 20s and 30s began to think about how power was manifested in society in very nuanced ways. Critical theory is a social analysis and it's a method and approach to society that prioritizes power. Who has power, who doesn't have it, and why? And critical theory is also a pushback against traditional, traditional theory in this regard. Traditional theory tends to describe the world as it is. Well, critical theory is interested in doing that, yes, but then also prescribing a vision for the world in terms of how it ought to be in keeping with critical theories, ideological, moral claims, and pre-commitments and presuppositions. That means that critical theory is interested in challenging the status quo, the ruling class, in terms of how power is manifested, and then those who are left outside of power, that have been marginalized and disenfranchised, they are brought into power. Critical theory wants to emancipate and give agency to those groups that are outside of power. And critical theory is very concerned about how power is manifested in our social systems and institutions. If we fast forward to today, now critical theory is manifested in what we would call critical social theory. And critical social theory is a broad term that encapsulates a number of critical social theories, like critical race theory, queer theory, feminist theory, post-colonialism, and so forth. And each of those knowledge areas, Rob, are looking at power relative to those respective knowledge areas. So if it's critical race theory, critical race theory is interested in terms of how power is manifested along the lines of race and how people of color, particularly uh, blacks, have been left outside of power. Queer theory is thinking about power re uh, relative to the LGBTQIA plus community and how power is manifested in gender and sexuality and so forth. It's also important to keep in mind that critical social theory is interested in looking at power from a perspective that is defined as hegemony, hegemonic power, how the ruling class imposes its will, their will, on society's norms, traditions, and customs. So we're not just looking at overt violence. We're looking at how power is manifested in our everyday lives in such a way that those who are not part of the status quo are left out of power. So Pat, if the critical theorists had their way, what would be a tangible manifestation of, of the intent of all of this? What, what would things look like? How would they be different in a substantive way? That's a great question. We need to keep in mind that critical social theory, again, as I mentioned earlier, has its own ideological standpoints and perspectives. So it has a prescription of how it thinks society ought to be. For instance, critical social theory would say that heteronormativity, this notion that heterosexuality is normative and good in society, is flawed. That, that position is flawed because those who are gay, those who are homosexual, those who don't have a heterosexual bent, are now left out of the structures of society in terms of their own personal agency. The notions of traditional marriage, for instance, being codified into law, the, those who are pro the gay community would say, well, no, that's not good. 
we, we need to overturn that perspective. And our vision for the world relative to marriage would be something entirely different than traditional marriage between one man and one woman. And so if critical social theory is engaged in society from a full, robust way, then that means there will be shifts in terms of how society is comported. There are issues around social justice. Social justice is a very important part of critical social theory. So part of social justice wants to change societal conditions to benefit those groups that have been left out of power. And so a positive thing that critical social theory is interested in is pushing back against racism, challenging racism. And so we would see changes in society relative to how racism is still manifested manifested in certain institutions and so forth. So again, critical social theory is going to have a vision for the world and a vision for society that at points will run strongly counter to, say, the Christian faith or classical liberalism or classic perspectives in the civil rights movement. Critical social theory pushes back on all those uh, visions of society and then wants to put forth its own vision. And again, some of it will be counter to classical liberalism and the civil rights movement and the Christian faith, and then other aspects of it would dovetail with it and be concurrent with it. So I'm curious if they if they look ahead. Let's just take the issue of, of marriage and relationships and heteronormativity, as you reference. If a substantial part of the population uh, disregards uh, heterosexual relationships, uh, humans cease to survive in a probably a fairly short period of time. Is this ever discussed? Uh, because the outcomes of all of this down the line, just a little ways, are not good. Rob, that's an excellent point that you bring that up because I, at times, bring up that point. And we mentioned in our book that if everybody decided tomorrow to just be gay and also only have relations, relative sexual relations, you know, related to their newfound sexuality of being gay, then you're right. Our society would cease to be in relatively short order. And we make the case that that reality, broad homosexuality, if everyone would adopt it, that in a sense is an existential threat on our species, at least conceptually. That should be a signal to us that this view of sexual ethics may be flawed. And I would say that the thing that you're bringing up is it, you know, is this brought up, this discussion? Not a lot. There are times that I'm bringing it up, but you can imagine that how that would be trauma inducing and triggering for certain people to now begin to think about homosexuality from the standpoint of whether that is something that is working categorically uh, against the thriving of our society given that heterosexuality is really needed to perpetuate our society. So I would say that even in my spheres where I am at conferences with the critical tradition, I'm I'm dead center in the critical tradition as an academic, that this topic that you just mentioned here is not brought up a lot, but it is a good point. There is some terminology in contemporary critical theory, and I'd like to just go over a couple of these things. One of the big centerpieces is privilege, and we hear a lot about white privilege. This is a discussion today. But what are they talking about generally when they keep mentioning privilege? Yeah, that's another good question. Privilege in critical social theory is tied to the issue of disparities. This notion that if there's any disparity between groups, 
then that basically means that something negative has happened. There's been some kind of discrimination. There's been some kind of prejudice involved. And privilege now is seeing something that is equated to equity. Any equity that you would have, well, now you're automatically privileged. The notion of whether you happen to work hard or whether you worked harder than someone else or the notion that you actually literally pulled yourself by, up by your own bootstraps, and we know that that phrase can be problematized and, and needs to be unpacked a little bit, but in terms of it, it's not always equally applied to every group. But this notion that you actually would earn something, quote-unquote, on your own, that runs counter to how privilege now is being manifested or articulated in society. It's this idea that even if you have worked hard to get to a certain level or place in your career or in your work in some capacity, that no, no, you have just in a sense been given that automatically. And now since you have that privilege, others don't have that privilege. And the fact that they don't have that privilege is now problematic. And privilege is also tied to kind of majoritarianism. Like, for instance, in, in our country, you know, whites are a majority. Now, that is decreasing as we you know, continue to, to move through history. But since whites have been a majority in our culture, then issues around privilege have been attached to the reality of that majority. And so now the norms or the customs or the traditions or the, the ways of being, the modes of being from an ontology standpoint, how humans be in the world, since there's been a lot, there's a lot of white people manifesting how they are being in society, then, then the good things in society have now been attached to the buoy of whiteness. And now those things are now articulated and considered to be marks of privilege and we make the case that that is a flawed way to think about things. Certainly, there have been times where there has been white privilege manifested in our society on a broad scale that has been egregious and terrible. We can think about slavery and Jim Crow. White privilege is something that was rooted and related to a moral breach under slavery and Jim Crow, very egregious perspectives. But today, often what we're talking about in terms of white privilege is just something con connected to white majoritarianism, and that is not necessarily something that possesses a moral breach. And, and then if you travel and you go to other parts of the world, there are times that I'm in Kenya, for instance, and notions around white privilege that might be operative in the U.S. are not being offered. You know, they're, they're not being manifested when I'm in Nairobi in certain situations. And so we encourage people to think very nuanced and, and in a robust way around privilege to see where critical social theory gets it right and where critical social theory gets it radically wrong. You make such an interesting point, Pat Sawyer, about visiting Kenya. And I have neighbors and a lot of friends who are first generation who have come here from Africa uh, who happen to be mm. black who essentially kissed the ground of the United States of America and loved this country to the core. And so why, why are right. we having two experiences here for people who are of essentially the same skin color? Yeah, that's a good question. I, and it, you're right. What you're touching on is a phenomenon that those that are African-Americans that have, have been part, their families' histories have been part of this country do have a radically different view than the typical African that is coming over here to the U.S. 
and is moving here and is, is essentially new to here. I think part of that is a couple of things. One, the conditions that some of the our African friends and neighbors that are moving out of in terms of Africa are highly difficult and certainly very depressed and under-resourced from a financial standpoint often. And so coming to the U.S. gives automatic upward mobility and agency compared to where they were in terms of their living conditions and their day-to-day lives. So I think that difference helps condition how the you know the person from Kenya might think about the US. The American dream is still something that seems to be vibrant and attainable, particularly compared to where they were. But if you're an African American in this country and you can look back and see your family being part of slavery, your family being very uh, sinned against in terms of oppressive conditions relative to Jim Crow, and then we have deficits in the black community today relative to a number of things that have to do with the accumulation of wealth. Well, now there certainly is more of a cynical view of the United States relative to those who have been here longer, and their heritage has been one of their family members being oppressed and disenfranchised. So there's a sense in which it does make sense that there would be some distinctions. But one of the things that you're really getting at, Rob, is the fact that your skin tone doesn't automatically mean something relative to your lived and personal experience. And part of the problem with critical social theory is that it it really has a pronounced emphasis on ethnicity and that being tied to skin tone and pigmentation. And we we should recognize that, well, Not everybody's experience is even radically the same, even when our skin tone is the same. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast continues in a moment. Our guest is Pat Sawyer. Online at shillingshow.com. Shillingshowmedia.com is your one-stop shop for websites, audio and video production, and photography. Shillingshowmedia.com will take your project from conception to completion. Shillingshowmedia.com is reasonably priced and highly professional. Need a website for your business? Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. Need a video created or edited? Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. Have a photography or graphic design project? Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. Shillingshowmedia.com is your one-stop shop for websites, audio and video production, and photography. Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. That's Shillingshowmedia.com. Shilling Show Unleashed. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. The book is Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and Social Justice Ideology, Implications for the Church and Society. Our guest is co-author Pat Sawyer. So Pat, you had mentioned the church earlier, and I want to talk about the church itself. You note in the book a lot of problems within the church. You also notice this focus, this hyper-focus on race in some churches, So how do we deal with that, and how do we even begin the conversation? I think we need to keep a couple things in mind when we're thinking about race in the church. Number one, we want to recognize Revelation 5-9, Revelation 7-9, that our ethnic part of our identity will still be maintained in heaven. So there's a sense in which we don't want to erase entirely uh, the importance of our ethnicity. 
and that being related on some level to skin color. We also need to keep in mind that though our ethnic identity is radically subordinated to our identity in Christ. Galatians 2.20, I no longer live, it is Christ who lives in me. Everything in terms of my identity markers are rubbish compared to my identity in Christ. And we as Christians have to recognize that our identity in Jesus transcends our uh, racial distinctions, recognizing there's only one race, the human race, but it transcends our ethnic distinctions. It transcends our class distinctions. It transcends our gender distinction. And we have got to lean into our identity in Christ if we're ever going to have any true unity. Another thing that we've got to keep in mind, that any redress or reparations that would be considered to be given to any groups that have been disenfranchised in our society, any consideration of those things cannot be based upon false views of sin and guilt. And our book is very concerned about this dynamic. And so we have a whole section on how to think about collective guilt. We emphasize strongly that people are not guilty of sins they did not commit. And so if we're going to think about how the church should think about racial healing and racial unity, we can't think of whites as historic oppressors, you know, whites that are currently standing in front of you in your church. We cannot think about those whites as historic oppressors, as if they somehow have to be on board, on board the guilt of whites in the past years ago that had nothing to do with the whites that are standing in front of you. Their guilt relative, those historic rights relative to slavery and Jim Crow, we can't import that sin into our current context and act as if now we need to respond to each other as if we are still living in slavery and Jim Crow. Now, we do emphasize strongly there, if there's actually been racial sin, if a white person has sinned against a black person or a black person has sinned against a white person in church, well, then they need to repent and to confess that sin. They need to repent. They need to go to Christ. And if there's been any action that has caused harm, that needs to be redressed, certainly. But we can't think about racial, racial reconciliation by thinking about historic issues relative to racism. We lay out in our book a three-point plan for racial healing and racial unity, Rob. And that plan begins with an awareness of our racialized history, then we move to contemplating different aspects of our racialized history, and then how racism is manifested today, and then we encourage action to bring about racial unity and, and racial healing. But we can't get tripped up about false views of racial reconciliation when there ha hasn't actually been sin present. But I, I, I would finally say along these lines that the church should be in the vanguard of racial unity and racial healing, because there's two things that are a reality. One, we are connected in the Imago Dei. There is one race, the human race. All of us are created in God's image. So we have solidarity there. And then we all have solidarity that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have solidarity there as well. And then when those who become saved, they get saved, they come to Christ, salvation in Christ by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. When that salvation happens, now we are all unified and in Christ, and we have solidarity there. And so if we keep these things in the forefront of our thinking, 
This will help us in our racial unity and connection. You had mentioned the term equity earlier, and I don't want to let this get by us because what we have seen in the application of uh, equity is uh, what I would perceive as a dumbing down of standards. In other words, we have it in our local schools and it's going to the lowest common denominator instead of trying to bring everybody up to a high standard. Is that a problem for equity? And if so, can it be rectified? Yes, that is a problem. And I do think it can be rectified, but it is a problem. You know, classic liberalism really leans into egalitarianism, inequality. This notion that everybody should have an equal opportunity and then the outcomes will be what they'll be. When we run a race, some people are faster than others. It's just the way it is. And But people need to have the equal opportunity to run the race. And this is where you know our society has harmed certain groups because equal opportunity hasn't been available to uh, certain constituencies and groups. And that's horrendous and horrible. But what critical social theory has done is made a rhetorical move that, no, it's not good enough to just press egalitarianism and meritocracy. In fact, egalitarian, meritocracy, equality, those collective goods relative to, to classical liberalism are problematized by critical social theory and really viewed as mechanisms to conceal racism. And since that's the adopted framework, this means that equity now needs to be thought about in a very robust way. And Ibram X. Kendi, for instance, would say that any disparities that exist between blacks and white is because racism has happened. And since it has happened, then we cannot treat each group fairly. We need to treat people of color better and give more equity to people of color to to make up for the fact of the differences, the, the disparities that exist. And so that will necessarily mean, as you've indicated that in certain aspects of our society, there will have to be a dumbing down, uh, as you put it, if equity is truly going to be given and manifested across the board, because we decoupled the equity from equal opportunity, where we, in equal opportunity, we keep competition and meritocracy earning something part of the equation as critical social theory thinks about equity, those things are dislodged and taken out. And so equity now is given and bequeathed by society. And that's part of the revolution that critical social theory wants to see. It wants to see power taken from the status quo and the ruling class and then dispersed to those who don't have it. And that mechanism is through equity. Pat Sawyer, wonderful work that you have done in exploring the subject in the book, Critical Dilemma. If people would like to get a copy of the book or if they'd like to visit you online and see the other work that you're doing, would you tell us how, please? Certainly. You could find me at patsawyer.org. I'm also at Real Pat Sawyer when it comes to Twitter. Also, my colleague, Neil Shinvey, he has a wonderful site, Shinvey Apologetics, and you can find him online. And there's a, a lot of resources that he has collected on his site that he and I have done together a number of those things. And then he's done some things independently. Some of that we've been in uh, consultation about, but there's a lot of good, uh, wonderful information out there connected to Neil Shenvey's website, Shenvey Apologetics as well. Great. And where can we get the book? I think the classic statement is anywhere books are sold, but I'm not, I'm not quite sure that's the case at the moment. I've been told that they are, that books are 
on their way to Barnes and Noble, I stopped by Barnes and Noble Hill recently, and they told me that they had some that were coming in. But ChristianBooks.com, you can find the book there. Certainly on Amazon, you can find the book there as well. And I know it can be purchased online at Walmart and Barnes and Noble. I don't know that the book is quite in the brick and mortar stores yet, but certainly through those websites, you could get the book. And and anybody that would buy it, and and also. Rob, you taking the time to have me on the show. It's really an honor, and I really do appreciate it, and don't take it for granted. You have done wonderful work in discussing this subject in a very serious way. Pat Sawyer, thank you for joining us today on the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. That concludes another edition of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time.